the benefit of omega-3 seem to go away. And there are a lot of potential reasons for that. Partly it's just changes in modernization in, in medicines and coronary care cardiac care. These are typically heart disease trials. People are just not nearly as sick. There's less heart disease. Heart disease rates are really dropping like crazy over the last 20 or 30 years. We've been very successful in reducing risk. And so that makes it harder to find an effect. Welcome to The Proof Podcast, a space for science-based conversation exploring the health and longevity benefits that come with mastering nutrition, physical exercise, mindfulness, recovery, sleep, and alignment. Facts, nuance, and trustworthy recommendations, minus the hyperbole. Hello, my friends. Welcome back. Great to be here with you. I'm your host, Simon Hill. I'm a qualified physiotherapist and nutritionist with an undergraduate science degree and a master's in the science of human nutrition. In my career, I've worked with many people, including elite professional athletes, to improve their health, performance, and longevity. And I'm currently involved in research with a group of nutrition scientists in Australia, looking at dietary patterns and mental health. Today I sit down with Bill Harris, PhD. Dr. Harris is one of the world's preeminent experts in the field of omega-3 fatty acid research, having published over 300 scientific papers, primarily focused on the role that these fatty acids play in cardiovascular and neurocognitive health. In this conversation, we discuss the different types of fats in our diet, whether the 1980 guidelines encouraging people to eat more unsaturated fats and less saturated fats were well-informed and justified based on the evidence of the day. Bill's personal interest in omega-3s, the benefits of consuming omega-3s, and why the research looking at this has been somewhat conflicting. If someone chooses to supplement omega-3s, what is the optimal dosage? Whether there are any side effects of high omega-3 intake, as well as Bill's thoughts on omega-6s, oxidation, inflammation, and the omega-6 to 3 ratio. Safe to say there's a lot in here. From a genuine expert in the field who's been rolling up his sleeves and researching these fats for decades. Please do enjoy, and I'll catch you on the other side. Hey, Bill. Welcome to the show. Hey, good to be on. Nice to see you. Yes, it's uh, great to be with you. And I just want to say from the outset... Uh, I, as someone whose work that I, I really, really admire, uh, thank you so much for joining me today. I'm really looking forward to diving into all things fatty acids with you and sharing that with the audience. Before we get into that, though, you sent me a message a few hours ago, and I'm, I'm intrigued. You mentioned a pickleball, and I'm from Australia. Pickleball is not something I've come across here. I think I may have seen people playing it in Los Angeles when I was visiting. But tell me about pickleball. Is it is it sort of like a tennis and table tennis kind of game? Yes, it is like it, it's sort of like uh, it's a smaller court than tennis, a lower net than tennis, but it's sort of like standing on a ping pong table and playing ping pong. I mean, and it's usually played doubles. And it's a plastic wiffle ball kind of thing. It's, it's, it's getting very popular here, particularly among older people, because you don't have to move very much. Okay. Well, it sounds like a... But it's a, been around since the 60s. It's in, it started in California. It sounds like a, a fun way to stay active. I'm sure it gets a little competitive yes. out there. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah, you go online, look up pickleball. You'll find some interesting games. <laughs> and you just said to me that I remind you of someone. 
Barry Gibb, of course. <laughs> <laughs> Who's Barry Gibb? Love the Bee Gees. Oh, the Bee huh? Gees. Okay. Bee Gees. Okay. Yeah. Who's Barry Gibb? Yeah. Oh, okay. All right. <laughs> All right. I know who I'm dealing with now. I have many, many questions for you. And I know that it's uh, it's 7 p.m. or roughly 7 p.m. your time. So let's see what we get through. And, and perhaps we, if we run out of time, we can leave room for a, a part two. And sure. I was thinking about the best on-ramp here to tackle this topic of, of fatty acids and, and help make the most sense of it. And I do really want to zoom in on polyunsaturated fats today, but I presume saturated, monounsaturated, polyunsaturated fats will come up in our conversation and, and how they're sort of interrelated. And these are terms and nutrients that uh, most of us have heard, many of us probably use these in sentences at certain times, but we may not fully appreciate what they mean and, and how they differ from one another. So perhaps you could kick things off here just by briefly explaining what is it that makes a fat saturated, what makes a fat monounsaturated, and what makes a fat polyunsaturated, and perhaps along the way we can just point out some of the common foods uh, that we find these in in typical diets today. Sure. Yeah, that's a great place to start. Uh, I guess we could start first with the difference between fats and oils because they are they're, uh, it's very similar. We typically say a fat is just a, 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 a lipid that is uh, solid at room temperature. You think butter. That's primarily saturated fat. Um, and, but that's fat. Oils are also triglycerides. They're both triglycerides chemically. Uh, but oils are liquid at room temperature. So that's pretty simple. T typically, vegetable oils are, are liquid at room temperatures. Um, animal fats typically are solid at room temperature. It's because of the what you call saturation. Um, and saturation is a odd term. Uh, doesn't it's not intuitively intuitive why it would be called that. Um, if, if you look at the, the chemistry of the molecule, a, a fatty acid or is a long chain of carbon atoms. It's a straight long chain. And there are single bonds for your chemistry folks, single bonds between each carbon. And Occasionally, there's a double bond between each carbon, and when you have a double bond, that's what's called a point of unsaturation. So an unsaturated fatty acid has double bonds in it. A, a saturated fatty acid has no, un, has no double bonds in it. And we call them saturated because the, the, the carbon chain is saturated with hydrogen atoms, which stick on the carbons. And if you've got as many hydrogen atoms as possible, it's saturated. Um, Polyunsaturated, there's monounsaturated and polyunsaturated. And mono, of course, is just one double bond. Polyunsaturated is two or more. And so we, we can go deeper if you want, but uh, that's the beginning of it. No, I think that's great. I think a, a little further into the conversation, we might break down the polyunsaturated fats a bit more and the two different pathways sure. to, to help make sense of some of that with omega-3s and omega-6s. But when it comes to our health, I'm interested how this idea of saturation becomes important when we think about fats and human health outcomes, particularly cardiovascular disease. And perhaps, yeah. it, perhaps it would be good to 
to go back to the 1970s or even earlier, wherever you feel is appropriate to kind of speak to why have scientists and, and physicians spent so much time considering the type of fat in our diet and, and, and why this is important in its relation to human health? Yeah, it's a good, it's a good question. It goes back about a hundred years probably, and it goes back to cholesterol because that was the, the reason saturated fat got and polyunsaturated fat became interesting to nutrition scientists was because of what they do to cholesterol levels in the blood. And of course, cholesterol was linked to atherosclerosis, you know, the coronary arteries getting plugged up with plaque. Uh, cholesterol was very closely tied to that process. High levels of cholesterol in the blood meant high risk for heart disease and low levels were good. And those studies came out of what they call the seven study, seven country studies, Ansel Keys, uh, where he looked around the world and found that, that countries that have high cholesterol levels near people have high heart disease rates. And it was soon discovered that when you eat saturated fat, animal fat, it tends to raise your cholesterol levels. Mm -hmm. And if you eat a lot of vegetable oils or liquid oils, um, your cholesterol level goes down. Actually, when you remove saturated fat, your cholesterol level goes down. And so that's why it became important to attend to what kind of mm -hmm. saturation, high, you know, saturated or unsaturated fats, uh, how much you eat in your diet uh, because of the effects on cholesterol. Can I ask you a question on, on the seven country study and, and what you just mentioned there about how these different fats affect cholesterol? I think a lot of people who take a, a sort of position that epidemiology is flawed often overlook the fact that what you're talking about there, you know, perhaps the idea started in the epidemiological studies, but then there was a series of metabolic ward studies that very much were confirming exactly what you just spoke about, right? Exactly, right. Right, the, ob the observations come from weaker study designs like epidemiology, uh, but you can test them in the lab and then you can find out. So tell me, where did, where did your personal interest into to fatty acids sort of begin and, and was this taking shape after the research that you, you just spoke of then? Um, my particular interest uh, grew from, uh, I actually got my PhD in nutrition and the study I did for my, my uh, dissertation was uh, what's the effect of a, you know, low vitamin C levels on blood cholesterol levels. And so I studied guinea pigs and uh, we, got, we got familiar with the, the cholesterol, blood cholesterol uh, world. And then I went to do a postdoctoral fellowship with uh, a doctor in Portland, Oregon named Bill Connor. Um, and he's, Bill's an MD, but he was very, very interested in how different kinds of fats in the diet affect cholesterol levels. And by the late 70s, we knew what I just told you, that uh, high cholesterol, excuse me, high saturated fat diets raise cholesterol and high polyunsaturated, that is to say the vegetable oil type um, fats, will lower cholesterol. But we didn't know if it was because we didn't know why, for one thing. Um, and one thing Dr. Connor was interested in was 
is it the fact that the animal fats are solid, chemically solid at room temperature, and the vegetable oils are liquid at room temperature, or was it the fact that it actually was from an animal? There was an animalness mm-hmm. to them, or a plantness to them. Uh, which which was it that was actually driving the cholesterol effect? And so he, I think, rather cleverly at the time thought, well, let's study a oil that is liquid at room temperature, but is from an animal, and that's fish, salmon, as it mm. turned out. Yeah, that's that's so very my, clever. My assignment was to do a study, uh, to re- a metabolic ward study, as you just mentioned, uh, where we fed very high levels of salmon oil or vegetable oil or saturated fat in four-week slots to healthy volunteers to see what happened to the cholesterol and other blood lipids like triglycerides. And what we found was the saturated fat raised cholesterol, the vegetable oil lowered it, and the fish oil lowered it. Um, And it also the fish oil also lowered triglycerides, which the other, mm. which the vegetable oils didn't do. So that was the first observation. I think that mm-hmm. fish oils are good for lowering triglyceride. But we were feeding outrageous amounts of oil. It was about uh, two hundred and fifty milliliters a day of salmon oil, about 20, 20 to twenty five grams of EPA DHA, which is you know five times what Eskimos eat, mm-hmm. but it was, so, Dr. Connor just said, hit it with a big hammer, you know, see, see what happens. Sure. So that's, that's not really obtainable in a, a kind of typical diet, but what you were no able way. to, to produce was this result that spoke to the fact that it's not necessarily the source animal or plant that is having this effect on the cholesterol. It's the type of fat being right. sort it's of the chemical, chemical composition of the oil, right? Right. So I'm not sure if we're going to go too far into the weeds, but I might ask you and, and feel free to keep it as surface level as you think is is best. What is it about a fat that is saturated and a fat that is polyunsaturated that causes them to have differing effects on cholesterol? Yeah. And that was a, that was a long search to try. And we have to really get a little bit more specific than cholesterol now, because we need to talk about the two two uh, ways that cholesterol is carried in the blood, LDL, low-density lipoproteins, and high-density, the what's called the good cholesterol and the bad cholesterol, or vice versa. Because LDL, low-density lipoproteins, are, are particles that carry cholesterol. Cholesterol is a lipid. It doesn't dissolve in the, in the blood, which is water. So it has to be carried in a particle. And it's the LDL particles that are the ones that are causing heart disease, causing arthritis or atherosclerosis. And when we looked more carefully, it wasn't just the total cholesterol that went up when you ate saturated fat. It was the LDL particle numbers went up. And somebody eventually figured out, and I can't remember who, um, that when you feed, and these these studies were done in animals because uh, you had to take out the liver to understand it because the liver is what controls LDL cholesterol levels. And they found that when you an animal's on a high saturated fat diet, the membranes, the cell membranes in the liver, uh, which, uh, and, and I guess I should also mention that the way that the LDL cholesterol levels are controlled is really by how many, what they call LDL receptors are in the liver. These are 
uh, little uh, things that sit on the outside of the liver cells, and they will bind LDL particles and pull them into the cell, remove them from the blood. So if you have more active LDL receptors in your liver, your cluster, your LDL levels will go down. But they found out that a high saturated fat diet changes the number of those receptors on liver cells. So there's fewer LDL receptors in the liver. So there's fewer places to remove LDL particles from the blood. So the levels stay up. And if you put polyunsaturated fat in, there's more receptors, they're more active, and they will, like a sponge, pull the cholesterol particles into the liver and out of the blood. So it had to do really with the, the fluidity, we call it, of the cell membrane and how it affected LDL receptors. Fascinating. So with all of that in mind and the research that was kind of building up to the 1980 period, I'd like to hear your view on something. I see a lot of folks uh, online saying that the 1980 guidelines were misinformed, that these guidelines are, in some ways I hear people going as far as saying that they were responsible for the incredibly high numbers of or the rates of obesity and chronic disease that we see today. But what I'm hearing from you and also my read of the science is that it was pretty clear reducing saturated fat, particularly in place uh, with, particularly with polyunsaturated fats, was beneficial. And when I look at those 1980 guidelines, although there was a kind of emphasis, a low fat emphasis, there was a very strong emphasis on saturated fat being the key fat to reduce. So I'm, I'm wondering what your view is on the 1980 guidelines and, and how you feel when you hear that kind of view that, that they're to blame in some way for today's health that we see. Yeah, I, I think you're absolutely right. There, there wasn't, if you really read the guidelines, they emphasize reducing saturated fat and keeping monounsaturates and polyunsaturates high. But when it got translated into the lay, the lay world, it was just low fat, mm-hmm. low fat, um, which was not exactly what was intended. I think. And exactly how that happened, I, I can't remember how that got miscommunicated. But low fat turned, the food industry picked up on low fat and they made lots of low fat products, but they replaced the fat with sugar, Mm -hmm. essentially. And that was a problem. Um, It wasn't the low fatness per se of the recommendations. I think it was what the food industry did to uh, replace and make those foods palatable um, in a low fat form by adding more sugar, sugar. and other kind of uh, mm. artificial components, I guess, fibers that made it f- feel like fat. So I do think the increase in, sh- in sugar intake was was a unintended consequence sure. of those guidelines. I guess this just speaks to if you're going to reduce something in the diet, a lot of the benefit is, is derived by what you replace it with. Uh, so today in, in 2022, as we're, you know, some 40 years further down the track, how, would you say that it is now, you know, it's, it's, it's certain, we're certain that saturated fats increase risk of cardiovascular disease and polyunsaturated fats lower risk. And from a mechanistic point of view, is that driven, 
if if you agree with that statement, is that driven mostly entirely through cholesterol or um, more specifically the the ApoB containing lipoproteins, or are there other mechanisms at play here, like inflammation? Yeah, is that true? That saturated fat is still the bad boy. Um, even that's complicated now, and I'm sure you're aware. Um, it, there's no question that eating higher saturated fat diets do raise cholesterol. And it was always assumed that anything that raises, excuse me, anything that raises cholesterol is going to raise risk for heart disease. There was kind of the A equals B equals C kind of thing. Um, a fair amount of epidemiology now has, you know, these big meta-analyses of observational studies have looked at saturated fat intake in many, many populations and compared it to risk for actually developing heart disease events. And it's not quite so clear anymore that a high sat well, that, that a higher saturated fat diet does increase risk for actual cardiac events. Um, it, it could be that just the entire background diet has changed, the lifestyles have changed, um, and, and many other variables that you just can't control. Uh, but it's, uh, I think the, the consensus is for sure that trans fats, which we may get into, uh, the industrially produced trans fats, uh, are bad. No, no question. Saturated fat is a little bit of a question mark. Mm -hmm. Um, and it probably has to do with how much and how much polyunsaturated fat you eat at the same time. Mm -hmm. uh, so it's, it's still, I'm not sure it's much clearer than it, and maybe it's even less clear than mm -hmm. it was in the eighties now. Do you think some of that comes down to what the diet composition of the low saturated fat diets looks like in those observational studies and, and whether that's a kind of high quality diet or, or perhaps a lower quality diet with lots of refined carbohydrates? Well, it certainly can be. Um, yeah, as you know, you can eat a plant-based diet that is really pretty crappy mm -hmm. uh, nutrient-wise. Right? Certainly, yeah. Pick the wrong stuff. Um, mm -hmm. And I think that's probably what happened. I think particularly of the what's called the PREDIMED study from Spain, uh, a very important study. But the average Amer the American Heart Association guidelines diet was the control diet and compared to a Mediterranean diet. And the American Heart Association diet had more heart disease. And it was low fat. Mm -hmm. uh, it, what the other components are of it. I don't really remember th at the moment, but I, I do remember thinking, oh, great. Now, so the, the, the diet the American Heart Association is promoting is now a, the, the bad guy. Mm -hmm. And the Mediterranean diet is the good guy. Uh, you know, if, if we really knew what a Mediterranean diet was exactly, uh, th that's still up in the air, I think. Sure. And I guess the other bit of complexity here is that not all saturated fats – are equal and, and, and have the sort of same potential, it seems, when it comes to raising cholesterol and that, you know, saturated fats like palmitic or uh, myristic and lauric, they seem to raise cholesterol, but others like steric acid or short-chain fatty acids, which are all the rage now with the, the microbiome, they, they're also saturated but do not seem to affect cholesterol in the same way. Do you think that's another sort of uh, layer of complexity here? Yes, yeah, and I'm glad you mentioned that because we, it's really quite naive 
I mean, when we get even into the omega-6 and omega-3 polyunsaturates, it's, it's naive to, to classify these based on their chemistry, based on their all, all because all the saturated fats get painted with the same brush, but mm-hmm. they shouldn't, like if you just said. Sure. Uh, they don't all have the same behavior. And then the same way plays with the omega-3s and the omega-6s. Uh, so it's, it, we got to get away from these rigid classifications. Mm-hmm. It, these umbrella terms, it's similar with carbohydrates. Yeah. You know, I often say that a carbohydrate could speak to you know, a food like a jelly bean all the way to, to a black bean. And, and we, know, we, we know that those are, are likely to have quite different effects on our physiology and health outcomes. I, I like that analogy. I might have to use that yeah, for fats. You can, you can borrow that as, <laughs> as much as you want. Uh, monounsaturated fats tend to get a little less air time. But before we delve into the, the polyunsaturated fats a bit deeper, what do we know about the effect of monounsaturated fats on health? It, it, you know, you've, you've, you've made it very clear that swapping saturated fats for polyunsaturated fats is very beneficial. Uh, do we get the same sort of benefit by dialing down satur- certain saturated fats for monounsaturated fats? Can you, do you have a view on this? I don't think so. I, mean, I, th- I think the, uh, in the 1980s, the, the monounsaturated fats, the olive oils, um, the canolas were, were sort of the darling because of metabolic ward studies that showed that swap out saturated fat, put in monounsaturated fat, oleic acid is the principal fatty acid in that class. Uh, You got a drop in LDL cholesterol, the bad cholesterol, but you you got a rise in HDL cholesterol, the good one. And so based on those studies, people said, oh, you you the monos are great. but again, over the years, over the decades now, people have been looking at uh, many, many, many epidemiologic studies where they look at, at monounsaturated fat intake in populations and then look at what their risk for heart disease is. You know, forget the cholesterol level. What's the risk for heart attacks and strokes? And monounsaturates are not producing a clear picture. They in, in some studies, it looks like no effect, no relationship with risk for heart disease. Sometimes it's higher. Sometimes it's lower. Uh, it's it's really unfortunate that almost every fat is controversial these days. Every class, every family, there's contradictory evidence out there, which is very confusing to every. I mean, you know about it because you sit at the interface of science and, and mm-hmm. the public. Um, but I. Even from the you know me sitting on a science perch, it's it's very hard to make firm statements anymore mm-hmm. about. Well, I can make some firm statements about omega three, and I'm sure we'll get there. But we will get the, there. Uh, the monos are are still. Yeah, I mean, what people did was they said, okay, Mediterranean diet's good. Sure, that's fine. Mediterranean diet contains a fair amount of olive oil. Olive oil is good. Olive oil is a monounsaturated oil mm-hmm. primarily. Therefore, monounsaturated fats are good for your heart. And you can't necessarily make those leaps. Mm-hmm. You know, the Mediterranean diet is way more than just olive oil. Olive oil itself is way more than just monounsaturated fats. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I think that's the simple jump that people make. And it's, it's, uh, it's too simple. So polyunsaturated fats, uh, we've just established that this is an umbrella term 
and it encompasses both omega threes and and omega sixes. And there, you've just alluded to this, but there are certainly a lot of different views about these and the the healthfulness of of certain foods that are rich in in, in these. But before we get into that, can okay. you can you give an overview of the two pathways and and just the important things for us to think about with these pathways as omega-3s and 6s go from short to to long-chain fatty acids. Right, right. Um, Typically, we think of the polyunsaturated fatty acids as essential fatty acids from a nutritional point of view. That is to say, we really can't make, we we, we can make saturated fatty acids uh, from carbohydrates and proteins. We don't have to eat saturated fat for our, to stay healthy. We don't have to eat monounsaturated mm-hmm. fats. They can be made in our cells uh, just from other non-fat mm-hmm. part. But the polyunsaturated fats fundamentally cannot. So we they are essential nutrients. And the principal ones, there's one in each of the omega-6 and omega-3 families. And to... I should explain what omega means. <laughs> yeah, let's go rock it's, back. <laughs> it's, just, it's just not a fancy word. You know, and why isn't there an omega-5 and an omega-1? And You know, or, you know why three and six? Uh, it gets back to the, the shape of the molecule, the chemistry of the molecule. Uh, the omega, th- and all the polyunsaturated fatty acids have, by definition, at least two double bonds. And these double bonds are in certain positions in the carbon chain. And the omega-6 family of fatty acids all have one thing in common. They may have more, longer or more or less carbon atoms in the chain. They may have more or less double bonds in the chain. But the one thing that makes them all distinctive, that gives them the family name, is at the very end of the molecule, there's six spots before you hit the first double bond. And at the end of the molecule is what we call the omega end. There's the alpha end, which is the, is their fatty acid. So there's an acid group on one end and a non, it's called a methyl group on the other end. And that the methyl group is the end of the molecule, the omega carbon, Greek alphabet, alpha and omega. Omega is the end. Um, so if you count, six positions back, six carbons back from the omega end, you hit the first double bond. And that's common to all omega-6 fatty mm-hmm. acids. Uh, and omega-3s, the first double bond is in the third position back from the end. And that's common to all of them. And you, we cannot convert one to the other metabolically. Now, so we have, it's really there are two essential fatty acids in the the polyunsaturated family, things we cannot make ourselves, but we need them metabolically. Like we need vitamins, like we need minerals, we need at least two of the fatty acids, essential fatty acids. The omega-6 one is called linoleic acid. It's an 18 carbon long fatty acid. It has two double bonds in it. And one of them, the first one's in that omega-6 position, linoleic. And that is very rich in uh, most well, many seed oils, corn oil is a great example, soybean oil, or roughly 50% of the oil is linoleic acid. Um, and linoleic acid is sufficient 
to, if you eat linoleic acid and no other omega-6 family fatty acids, you can make all the others that you need. But if you don't eat linoleic acid, you get several uh, diseases, disconditions, mm-hmm. uh, oily skin, your uh, uh, that, that's the primary one. Rats became sterile, things like that. Uh, the omega-6 fatty acids are essential. Um, on the omega-3 side, there's also one called alpha-linolenic acid, ALA, we call it. It's 18 carbons long again. It has three double bonds. The first double bond's in that third position. And that also is essential. We, we can't, we have to have that to make the other fatty, you know, mm-hmm. long-chain omega-3 fatty acids. So those two are... Uh, in, in terms of the amount we eat in our diet, we eat a roughly 15 grams a day of, of linoleic acid and roughly a one, one to two grams a day of alpha linolenic, the omega-3, in, in the Western diet. Uh, and we, we don't really have to eat any other omega-6s or omega-3s. They, they can be made. Now, We'll get more into the long chain omega threes mm-hmm. in a minute, and but we can we can live and reproduce. I mean, the the witness is you look at vegan vegan populations, and they are not eating any of the long chain omega threes or long chain omega six, mm-hmm. but they they are born, they grow up, they have babies, they live a reasonably good life, healthy life. Um, so. That proves that you you can mm. do it with just the precursor fatty acids, linoleic acid and alpha linoleic. Yeah, I've got a bunch of questions on that and around, I guess, the difference between or whether there is a difference between adequate and optimal. And if you have any thoughts or around that, let's yeah. let's tackle omega sixes here first. Okay. Uh, I want to leave omega threes to second because I, I feel like we'll expand probably a little bit further. You mentioned seed oils there. You mentioned essential. And I, I think that that in itself will trigger some people listening. And you might think that's crazy, but some of the rhetoric that I see online is very, very anti-seed oil and is demonizing omega-6s to the point where it seems many people believe they don't have a valuable role and that they're inflammatory and contribute to disease. So I think before we get into some of the details there, can you just kind of establish what, where are omega-6s found in our body? And, and you mentioned that they, they are essential. What, what are those essential functions? What is our body using omega-6s for? Yeah. Um, I, I think the most, the best answer to that last question, what do we use omega-6s for, is a linoleic acid, the 18-carbon one that we get from seed oils, um, is converted to, a, uh, in the liver, it's made into a longer fatty acid, and it's still an omega-6 family. Um, it's called arachidonic acid. And arachidonic acid is a extremely valuable fatty acid. And it serves as the substrate or the beginning product or the, the, the material from which there's got to be hundreds of other bioactive molecules are made. Uh, we, we know about prostaglandins. We know about uh, leukotrienes. Um, there are even some uh, what we call the resolvin family of, of fatty acids. 
Um, there are uh, literally hundreds of molecules that are made from arachidonic acid. If you haven't got arachidonic acid, you can't make these. And these are, and arachidonate metabolites are, are very important in many processes, including inflammation, mm-hmm. inflammatory, uh, the proper use of inflammation, because we need obviously inflammation to uh, respond to an insult or an mm-hmm. injury. Uh, so arachidonate is probably why, and I honestly don't know the answer, and I should know the answer to this, if arachidonic acid alone really is the essential fatty acid. And linoleic is just mm-hmm. what we eat and gets converted into it. I mean, uh, seems like I've asked that question of a few people. It seems it's a very simple question. Mm. Uh, it should have been settled uh, like 50 years ago, what the answer to that question is. That's interesting. But I think there, there actually are roles for linoleic independent of being made into Sure. Arachidonic acid. So arachidonic acid, I think that's the one where I, I hear people saying, you know, if you, if you consume lots of seed oils, you're going to increase arachidonic acid and then you'll increase inflammation. And right. what I can't reconcile, Bill, and, and, and I, know, I know you will have spent time thinking about this. You've probably had many people bring this up before. What I can't reconcile is that if you look at the epidemiology and even randomized controlled trials, it looks like consumption of omega-6 linoleic acid leads to favorable human health outcomes. So I can't reconcile how there could be this, this deleterious mechanism which is causing an increase in inflammation, which is harmful, but we're seeing people that consume more linoleic acid actually do better. You said that is the entire problem right there, and you nailed it. Uh, I think I think the people who are so anti omega six w- refuse to look at the epidemiology, or I mean the randomized trials. There's it's mixed bag. Those are hard. They're hard to do, and they're very old. Um, they were very high doses of, of linoleic acid used. Um, but we've, these studies I've been involved with recently, and we published in the last two or three years, we've been asking questions like, uh, if, if you know, if, if you look at a population of 30, 20 or 30,000 people around the world, and you know their blood level of linoleic acid, omega-6, uh, and arachidonic acid, uh, we have then asked the question, well, do the people who have the highest omega-6 levels in the blood, linoleic or arachidonic, uh, are they more likely or less likely to develop heart disease over time or to develop diabetes over time? And in both cases, or just as you said, what we found is that the people who have the highest levels of linoleic acid in their blood are the least likely mm-hmm. to develop cardiovascular disease, and least likely to develop diabetes. It's the low levels of omega-6 in the blood that increase risk for those two conditions. Uh, And the the people I know who uh, have a problem with omega-6 will never respond to that kind of data. They don't Mm. engage the question. They just simply ignore it and say, look at the metabolic chart. Look at the fact that these compete with each other. Well, fine. But Life is a, well, a lot more complicated than a metabolic mm-hmm. chart. Um, and I, I don't know how you reconcile these observational data, which follow people over 
you know, decades of life. Mm-hmm. It's not just a four-week metabolic ward study. Um, so I do think the omega-6s are getting a bad rap. So if the, the other thing that comes up here, Bill, it's another mechanism. So again, you've just explained there that the, the health outcome data is, is more important or we should be giving more weight to, to that. But the other thing I do here, and I wonder if there's any legitimacy to this in any sort of way, shape or form, is that omega-6s, linoleic acid in particular, increases the oxidation of LDL and then that it's oxidized LDL not not elevated LDL in general, but oxidized LDL, that is the problem. Have you heard that one before? Oh, yeah, yeah. And uh, it's, again, it's looking, you know, it's, it's the old story about trying to describe the elephant when you're blindfolded. You may be looking at one piece of the puzzle. And yeah, diets high in linoleic acid do make LDL particles more, uh, um, oxidizable. Certainly if taking them out of the body, put them in a test tube and subject them to oxidation. They will. Well, that's fine. But you, you can't translate, you, you can't therefore assume that because you have higher blood levels. I mean, there are also uh, in, in the blood protective mechanisms that get kicked off by having more linoleic acid in the blood mm-hmm. that will protect your LDL particles from um, oxidation. And he, even if oxidation was a problem, at the end of the day, we still see, I mean, the thing is you measure what you can measure, and but you forget that there are other things going on inside the body, inside cells that you're not measuring. And we, we are so good at focusing what we can measure and we forget that there's all these other processes that may be happening, which again, in the end of the day, we see that people with high linoleic mm-hmm. acid levels have less heart disease. So something's going on. Mm-hmm. And these things may have adverse effects on pathway A, and they may have great effects on pathway B, C, D, and E, and we just don't measure those. Mm-hmm. At the end of the day, people don't have as many heart attacks if they have high linoleic acid levels. Now, arachidonic, you mentioned that, um, in the studies we've done, arachidonic acid levels are not related at all to whether you have heart attack or not or develop diabetes or not. Mm-hmm. It's it's neutral. It's not bad. It's not good. The linoleic acid's good. Sure. When you consume more linoleic acid, does arachidonic acid levels fluctuate and go up much or does the body sort of tightly regulate that? You got it. Yeah. The body regulates it. I, I remember a a great paper uh, by Jay Whalen where he, he looked at, he pulled all the studies he could find, feeding studies, where he knew exactly how much linoleic acid was being fed to people. And he was either increasing the amount of linoleic from baseline to giving them more or starting at baseline and taking it away. So changing the linoleic acid intake. And he, his question was, what does the plasma arachidonic acid level do? when you change the intake of linoleic acid. And he was surprised to find that regardless of whether you raised it or lowered it, the arachidonic acid levels mm-hmm. stayed the same. Um, so there certainly is no direct relationship between how much linoleic you eat and how much arachidonic you make. I think your earlier point you made is is one worth emphasizing that if we, if we zoom in on a, a mechanism, 
we we can't just presume that that's the only mechanism at play. And as you say, a food or a nutrient may, might negatively affect one pathway but could be positively affecting others. And really what matters is what's the net effect of that food. And to fully appreciate that, often you need to zoom out and look at, at health outcomes for that reason. Yeah. To kind of close yeah. the loop on omega-6s here, I'm wondering if in your view – are there any reasons at all to fear omega-6 fatty acids? Even if we were to consider other things that often pop up is what about the stability? What about reheating these? Are there any issues at all with these oils? Um, I mean, yes, I, I suppose there can be uh Certain many processed foods include linoleic or include soybean oil, which is uh, like seventy percent of the linoleic acid we get in our diet comes from soybean oil, and it's not just from liquid oil or on salad dressings. It's included in a many many kinds of foods, and some of those foods are uh, highly processed, uh, maybe even sugar rich, uh, simple carbohydrate rich, low protein, not good foods, junk foods. Mm-hmm. And eating more and more of those foods might be bad for you. Probably it is bad for you. Um, but don't blame it on the omega-6 fatty acids that happen to be carried along. Mm-hmm. Um, I guess that's what I would say. I, I, don't see, I don't see any toxicity of omega-6 fatty acids. Mm-hmm. Um, certainly not per se. And I've, so I, I guess your point is they're, they're um, staying away from processed foods is going to mm-hmm. – lower your omega-6 intake typically. Um, and that might be good. It might be bad. It might be counter, uh, countervening actions. Whereas the, sure. uh, the loss of the omega-6 might not be good for you, but the mm-hmm. uh, absence of the, the junk food might be good for, so it could cancel out. Yeah. So what you're saying is that omega-6s are inherently, they're essential and they have beneficial properties and effects on health outcomes. But where you get them from, of course, matters because if you get them from a food matrix where there's a whole lot of other things that have a deleterious effect on your health, then perhaps that's not the the best approach. And I do see that online, Bill. I see uh, people, again, it's a leap. You mentioned the word leap before. I think when people say, well, I'm no longer going to consume seed oils and then they remove all the ultra-processed foods, they attribute it to the seed oil, but there's a myriad of changes that have occurred in that in that sort of dietary move. Um, right. Just to close right. off omega-6s here, I do find one area of omega-6s particularly interesting and I think there might be some evidence. I, I, I read an article by Philip Calder who seemed to mention it, but it wasn't, there wasn't a lot of detail. And it was about reducing omega-6s and potentially some benefits for folks with rheumatoid arthritis. And I'm, I'm wondering if you've come across that, is there any potential mechanism that, that could explain that? Yeah, um, and it comes back to inflammatory conditions. Um, and I think it's fair to say, I, I've just said that cardiovascular disease and diabetes, two of the big metabolic problems we have in the Western world, uh, appear to be uh, associated with lower linoleic acid intakes. But that doesn't mean every disease is. I mean, there may be conditions like rheumatoid arthritis, like uh, autoimmune diseases, 
uh, where a lower omega-6 diet would help with that disease. It might not help with heart disease. It might not help. It might be counterproductive for other conditions, but for those conditions, it might be beneficial. Uh, so I, I think that's certainly within the realm of possibilities. I, I know that in the old days, they'd feed animals essential fatty acid, very, very low essential fatty acid diets, and they would not have, they would reduce inflammatory diseases. So, but, but that can't be extrapolated to mean, air, therefore, every disease mm-hmm. known to man benefits from a low omega-6 mm-hmm. diet. So if I'm eating a diet, my diet is, is there's not a lot of ultra-processed foods in there, and when mm-hmm. I when I cook, I tend to use avocado or olive oil. Am I am I potentially running into any issues there by by not regularly consuming sort of linoleic acid rich foods? Well, it, it could be. I mean, you are reducing your omega six intake, um, and in time, that's got ultimately that will play out in terms of lowering your tissue levels mm-hmm. of omega six. And that, um, again, based on the evidence we've seen, that could put you at higher risk. I mean, obviously, you've got, you've got other factors that are working in your favor uh, with the kind of diet that you're eating. But the omega-6 side only mm-hmm. would probably, uh, you'd probably benefit from maybe adding a little a little corn oil or soybean oil once in a while to some of your foods. I love it. I'm sure that's going to be news to some people, but but uh, that's that's <laughs> yeah, what they the, won't believe us. Though. That's what this show is about. You know, let's try and cl- oh, clear some of that confusion, uh, whether it challenges us or not. Let's move into uh, omega threes, and then perhaps we can can finish at the end with what this kind of means for someone's overall diet and supplementation mm-hmm. routine. A little, a little bit of a practical kind of way to finish, I think. So you've established that there's this omega-3 pathway. We have ALA, which is considered essential. That's in uh, foods like walnuts and flax and chia seeds, a bunch of foods. And then that the body converts that to DHA and EPA. To some extent. To right. some extent. So I wanna I wanna get into that. But my 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 first question is before we get into DHA and EPA is about ALA, because I want to kind of uh, separate a, separate out a few different scenarios here. Yeah. My, my question is if if someone is consuming a diet that is devoid of ALA, let's say that they just supplement direct DHA and EPA and their diet does not contain enough ALA to meet the, the sort of daily requirements, is that an issue? And I guess more directly what I'm asking here is, does ALA itself have any sort of inherent beneficial properties other than being converted and acting as a precursor? That's the same question about linoleic and arachidonic. Yeah. Um, and... I don't think we know that. I don't know it, put it that way. Um, I think many people presume the only reason for consuming ALA is to provide a, a source of EPA and DHA. That um, that doesn't really make a lot of sense. <laughs> I mean, I suspect that there are roles for ALA um, that we don't know about. Mm-hmm. 
that have been that are hard to tease out uh, from the long chain omega three benefits. Um, but I, th- I think it's you're you're at a cutting edge question there, at least in my mind, because mm-hmm. uh, I, I could not tell you what the independent role of ALA is. I'm going to have to ask somebody tomorrow now that you've done this. To me. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, because it's uh, right. I, I think the almost everybody thinks it is primarily f- to serve as a precursor for the long chains. Mm-hmm. We can maybe come back to that in a, a future episode. What about? Sure. What about uh, DHA and EPA? Because I'm not sure that they're considered essential themselves, and you can correct me if I'm wrong there, Um, and and I'd love your thoughts on whether they should be considered essential or are they sort of conditionally essential in the absence of sufficient ALA? Yeah, I think the the latter. Um, Strictly speaking, nutritionists would say ALA, excuse me, ALA is essential. EPA and DHA are non-essential, but or conditionally essential in different different um, uh, nutritional environments. I guess you'd say uh, mm-hmm. it's certainly in the Western diet where we get very little EPA and DHA preformed. Uh, we know that higher levels of them are beneficial. We know that ALA does not get converted very much to EPA and DHA, uh, mm-hmm. less than like five percent. Um, and some will say it's because the high omega-6 diet prevents the ALA from being converted. And there's some truth to that, uh, but you certainly can't uh, achieve the kinds of levels of EPA and DHA uh, that we know to be beneficial just by eating ALA and, and removing omega-6. Mm-hmm. And, and just to go back to that point again, I think just because, I mean, if anybody thinks the world... Uh, rotates around omega-3, it's me. Okay. I mean, I, that's just been my world for 40 years. But I think we need to recognize that just because a lower omega-6 intake might facilitate a little higher omega-3 level doesn't necessarily mean that that's better for the whole body. Because mm. there's other, th- again, other, other processes that the omega-6s are playing a role in that are beneficial uh, that just because you raise omega-3s, the, doesn't mean you've canceled all those effects of um, of the lack of omega six. So I, I I think we still have to think about them in some kind of a balance. But sure, I get you know p- people get crazy about balances mm. and ratios. And I'm sure we'll get into that. Yeah. So um, so I would I would say to your question, EPA and DHA I think are uh, conditionally essential. Or mm-hmm. we really haven't got a good word for. Uh, they just make you healthier. I mean, yeah. you don't die without them mm. in your diet. That would be a, a true essential nutrient. You cannot live mm. without that thing in your diet. And that is true of ALA and linoleic acid. It's not true of EPA and DHA because, again, mm. there are vegan populations that eat zero EPA and DHA and they live. Mm. Sure. So we can't call it an essential, but we can call it conditionally essential or an opt- mm. optimization or something. Yeah, I think people can appreciate that. I mean, even if you think of something like fiber, fiber is not necessarily considered essential, but there's a yeah. difference between surviving and sort of giving your body the essential components for cofactors and enzymes, etc., versus thriving and in improving health span, which oh, yeah. is... is right. I guess what you're talking about yeah, um, right. there. I'm 
I'm interested with regards to, you know, the, the differences that exist between one's ability to convert ALA into to DHA, EPA, and I actually want to go into whether it converts to both or just one of. But how much of this is, it seems largely driven by genetics, but how much of this do you think is driven by uh, one's ancestry and whether or not they had a direct source of DHA, EPA in their diet? Well, you know, the whole human origins and, and the role of omega-3 in, in human development or human history, um, it's, it's atta- attracted some attention. It's an interesting question. I think what puzzles me is the idea that somehow if, you, uh, if, if we developed on the savanna, that there, was, there were no fish there. Hmm. Well, people can't live without water. And people almost always settle somewhere where there's a river or there's seashores, fine, mm-hmm. but there's also rivers. They all have fish in them. And it always makes me wonder why we think that uh, only people that uh, colonized or lived on ocean coasts had omega-3, but those that lived inland didn't have any omega-3 in the fish that they ate. I mean, it just seems puzzling mm-hmm. to me. Yeah, that's a good point. Um but but to your to your point, there have been. Uh, I mean, people have looked at uh, certain enzymes that are important in the conversion of EPA of ALA to EPA and DHA. Uh, they're called fatty acid desaturase enzymes or FADs, um, and there can there are different versions of those in different people. And it looks like uh, people of African descent have or, or have better conversion of, of these fatty acids to or even and Eskimos don't do it so well because they had a uh, presumably had a, uh, a good source of omega-3 in the seafood they ate. Mm-hmm. Um, but these are pretty small differences in omega-3 levels in the blood uh, f- arising from differences in these genes. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I, I think we over uh, over attribute uh, I mean, you're, you're, you're right that there is a difference in, it's a genetic difference in the ability to convert ALA to EPA and DHA. But to pin it down to one enzyme and one gene mm-hmm. uh, is a little naive. I think it's a, it's, there's a concert going on there that is far more complicated than we understand. Hey friends, I hope you're enjoying this episode so far. A quick message from one of our sponsors who makes this show possible, and then we'll jump straight back into things. If you're familiar with my nutrition philosophy, you will know that I'm a huge believer in plant-rich diets being better for people and our planet. You'll also know that I frequently draw attention to what I describe as nutrients of focus. These are nutrients that science shows plant-based eaters, whether plant-predominant or exclusive, can fall short in, which can leave you feeling run down, lacking energy, experiencing brain fog, and generally just not as vital as you'd like to be. For that reason, together with Emil, a plant-based health and wellness company, I formulated Essential 8. Essential 8 is your one-stop multinutrient, formulated with DHA, EPA, omega-3s from algae oil, vitamin B12, iodine, vitamin D3, iron, zinc, selenium, and calcium to perfectly complement your plant-rich diet. I personally take Essential 8 every morning with breakfast, just two capsules, much easier than supplementing with these eight key nutrients individually. What's even more convenient 
is I have a monthly subscription, so it turns up automatically on my doorstep and I never miss a beat. To get yours, head to theproof.com forward slash friends. That's theproof.com forward slash friends, where you'll find a link to purchase Essential 8 that will get you an extra 5% off your first order on top of the significant subscription discount. There will also be a link to this in the show notes. Okay, back to the show. And so bottom line, and I guess I'm trying, I'm, I'm reading the, the, the lines here a little bit, but you can tell me if, if I'm correct sure. or not, is that rather than getting lost in this minutia of different conversion rates that may exist, it does seem more optimal from your point of view to have a direct source of DHA and EPA in the diet. Correct. Okay. Yeah, I would agree with that. And how have we established that? Perhaps we can go into what you you feel is an optimal, uh, whether we go to omega-3 index and, and the amount of omega-3s in red blood cells, uh, how that's been established. And then we can, we can talk about uh, various ways to get there. Yeah. Uh, there's various ways to, to figure out what's, what's an optimal, optimal amount of EPA and DHA in the diet. Uh, one way is to look at different populations. And um, the one we always use, hold up as really the uh, a great example of a high omega-3 population that has good health benefits is Japan. Traditional ja- Japanese. I don't think the kids today in Japan are at all mm-hmm. uh, following the... Uh, in the traditional route, but historically, Japanese have had uh, blood omega-3 levels and uh, intakes of omega-3 uh, way on the high end, and they also live about as longer longer than almost anybody else does, and free of cardiovascular disease typically, or at least heart disease. They have strokes from high, high blood pressure, high salt diets, mm-hmm. um, but they typically live, I think it's four or so years longer mm-hmm. than Americans do. Uh, and I'm not sure what the Australian comparison would be, but it's uh, the Japanese are, are a good example. Their mm-hmm. typical intake is eight, nine hundred, a thousand milligrams of EPA and DHA a day. Uh, and they're exposed to that sort of level, f- essentially, from conception you know, all the way up. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that, I think, has, has good effects. Um, we've seen... You you alluded to the omega-3 index, and and so I'll I'll run with that for just a moment. We developed a a blood test of omega-3 levels uh, about uh, coming on 20 years ago called the omega-3 index, and it is the amount of EPA and DHA in a red blood cell membrane. So we use, because the omega-3s like to live in membranes in the body, the easiest cell type to get at for a doctor or a researcher is a red blood cell because they make up essentially half the blood. So we developed the test uh, looking at the amount of EPA and DHA as a percent of the total fatty acids in a membrane. And it runs typically from two or 3% at the very, very lowest end uh, to 10, 12, 15% uh, at the high end. Again, Japanese are around nine to 10%. Typical Americans have an omega-3 index in the 5 to 6% area. Um, again, vegans have an omega-3 index about 3.5%, very low. Uh, and it all comes from how much you eat, how much EPA and DHA you typically eat. It largely, almost completely. 
I mean, there's a few factors that can affect it. You know, smoking is lowers it, things like that. Um, but so getting back to your question, how much do you need for, for good health? Mm -hmm. uh, we, we established through many studies that a level in the red cell of about 8% uh, is about what you need to, have, to be in the optimal zone of the omega-3 index. And to, to move from a omega-3 index of 4 or 5% up to 8% takes, you know, about 1,000 to 1,500 milligrams a day of EPA and DHA. And this is, you know, for Westerners eating, eating the diets we eat. Mm -hmm. um, so that's kind of a ballpark of how much EPA and DHA preformed uh, one would need to, to get a healthy omega-3 index. Mm -hmm. With the, the Japanese populations that you just mentioned there, and, and they tend to have 8%, I think you said, so they sort of naturally are sitting up at that higher yeah. omega-3 index. Do you have any kind of sense or idea as to what their ALA intake is? Um, no, I'd have to look that up. I, I don't know. And I, I know in the U.S., the typical intake is about 1.5, 1.2 to 1.5 grams a day mm -hmm. of ALA. Japanese intake, I don't know. Sure. But it's, I guess, presumably from looking at their diet, it's safe to say that most of that that sort of high omega-3 index they have is driven through their regular consumption of fatty fish, seafood. Uh, my question right. is, and, and someone may be listening and thinking, well, I'm not eating uh, seafood and we'll get to supplements in a, in a moment, but what would happen if someone consumed a crazy high amount of ALA? Would they be able to nudge that omega-3 index up at all? Uh, yeah, they could nudge it up a little. Um, I know one study where they gave six grams a day of ALA. Uh, which is again about four times the normal American intake, and the EPA levels did go up a little bit, mm -hmm. which you'd expect. DHA levels did not. In fact, DHA levels went down a little bit, which is a little puzzling. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah. the net effect on the omega three indexes, which is EPA plus DHA, is uh, pretty minimal from even that six grams of, of ALA per day. Okay, so that's interesting. So adding more ALA, you got an increase in EPA, but a decrease, albeit small, in DHA, which might be sort of uh, sound counterintuitive if you if you're thinking about the pathway. Do you have any kind of explanation for that? Um, it, it not a good one. <laughs> um, <laughs> I've got uh, some guesses. It, it could be that a if you if you turn on the synthetic pathway for EPA, um, you know it it, it could uh, accelerate the um, utility or the turnover, the the utility use of the DHA because EPA will get into the membrane and it will replace DHA because there's only certain spots in membranes that EPA and DHA can hang out, and if there's more of one, there's might get, might be typically can be less of the other, mm -hmm. uh, so it could be a just a crowding out of EPA uh, by EPA out of DHA in, in red cell membranes. That's a possibility. It could accelerate the uh, degradation of DHA. That would mm -hmm. lower DHA. Why? How it would do that? I don't know. Mm. But there are a variety of ways you can imagine that. Mm. But we know that giving pure EPA, never mind giving ALA, 
giving pure EPA doesn't raise DHA levels. Mm -hmm. So there doesn't seem to be a sort of cross-conversion between EPA and DHA, or there is from DHA to EPA. Yeah, I mean, there's recent studies that that do suggest that taking EPA does actually contribute to DHA synthesis, but the levels don't go up. Okay. The DHA levels don't go up, but some of the, if you put a radioactive tracer on the EPA, you can see some of that tracer show up in DHA. Mm-hmm. So it, will get, it went from EPA to DHA, but the levels of DHA didn't go up. Mm. Uh, and that people think is just a, a accelerated uh, metabolism of DHA, which keeps the levels mm. sta- stable. And what about in reverse? If you just consume, and we'll, we again, we will come to supplements in a bit, but the, the blends tend to differ. If you just consume DHA, Will your body make more EPA? Well, we, we used to think so <laughs> because in many studies, it's been shown many times that if you take pure DHA, uh, you will see a small increase in EPA levels. Um, and people thought called that retroconversion, the idea that they would you would back up the synthetic pathway, mm-hmm. reverse it, and make EPA. Well, the synthetic pathway is extremely complicated and it doesn't make sense that you back it up. Um, but st- still, there's the observation. Um, it, it happens. Why does it happen? Uh, again, levels can go up uh, for different reasons, not necessarily because more of it's being made. At one level, DHA feeding may actually slow the breakdown in the use in the body of EPA. If it slows the breakdown of, of EPA, EPA levels will tend to rise, mm-hmm. but, but not because DHA actually got converted to EPA. And I think that's sort of the, the newest data from a group in Canada is, is pointing to that sort of mechanism. Um, but, but you can't really, some people say, well, if I can get EPA out of DHA, I should just take DHA and don't worry about the EPA. Well, you don't get much EPA mm-hmm. that way. There's a small increase, but it's not like taking preformed EPA. Okay. You mentioned that to get from 4 to 8%, you think it's about 800 milligrams to 1,000 milligrams of a blend of, of DHA and EPA, something like that. Do you have any sense if you just consider, say, the United States population, a typical omnivore, uh, mm-hmm. h- how much are they getting in their sort of standard diet, supplementation aside, just through diet on a, on a daily basis? Um, I think the average intake uh, is something like um, 120 milligrams. Okay. Uh, and it's more, more DHA than EPA. Gosh. So this is, while this is certainly very important for vegetarians and vegans. It's also important for anyone just eating a sort of standard omnivorous yeah. diet that's not regularly eating fish, which sounds like most people. Most Americans, yeah. Yeah. So before we get into some of the more practical components of, of supplementation, I think uh, some folks listening are probably uh, a little confused by headlines on omega-3s and supplement trials. And yeah. and perhaps they're thinking, well, you know, I heard that there were a bunch of trials and that results were underwhelming. Uh, subjects were given omega-3 supplements and, and there wasn't a significant difference. And I know that that's an oversimplification, but I'd love you to kind of explain 
what the current consensus yeah. is. We have a bunch of different trials. The methodology of these is different from the types of subjects to the type of omega-3 supplementation that has been used. When you sort of look, zoom out, and you just consider everything we, we have seen to date, where do you land? Um, it is clearly complicated. And the story was much clearer 20 years ago. Uh, when we had fewer randomized trials and the trials that we had with omega-3 uh, were, some of them were just spectacularly successful. Um, and it was, it, it was a slam dunk. Everybody knew omega-3s were good. And then over the last 20 years, there have been several studies that have tried to replicate those first ones. And as you said, never with negative results, meaning it never hurt anybody, uh, but the benefit of omega-3 seemed to go away. Uh, and there are a lot of potential reasons for that. Um, partly it's just changes in, in modernization in, in medicine and coronary care, cardiac care. These are typically heart disease trials. Um, people are just not nearly as sick. There's not as much, uh, there's, there's less heart disease. Heart disease rates are really dropping like crazy over the last uh 20 or 30 years. Mm -hmm. uh, we've been very successful in reducing risk. And part of that, so that makes it harder to find an effect mm. of anything. Um, doses have been low. People have not been using very high doses of omega-3. Um, and the, there have been two studies that used quite high doses, three to four grams of EPA and DHA or, or of omega-3. Um, and one of those studies, which just used EPA at four grams a day was uh, quite successful. Is that the reduce it trial? The reduce it study. Yeah. yeah. That used a pharmaceutical product called Vasipa, which is just a pure EPA product. And that, uh, appeared to be very effective in lowering risk for cardiovascular events. Um, but there's been a lot of controversy about it because it, they used an unusual placebo, which mineral oil, unabsorbed mineral oil, which will, uh, at least the group that got mineral oil had a higher rate of heart disease than the people who got Vasipa. And the question is, did the people who got the placebo actually have more events mm. than they otherwise would have? Was it bad for them? And it made the treatment group with EPA mm -hmm. look good. Uh, or is there some mix of that? And I think that the current belief is there's some, some uh, of each. There is a, mm. a, a true benefit of the EPA, and, but maybe it's not as big as it appeared mm. in these papers. Um, a, another trial came out about two years later, uh, which was with about four grams of EPA plus DHA in a, in a different kind of form. It's called a free fatty acid form, and it showed no benefit at all. Mm. Again, no no downside. I mean, my my concern about these big randomized trials is that we're treating omega threes like drugs and not like nutrients, and we're expecting. I think we're asking more of, of a nutrient than you can ever than you ever should ask. Uh, this, this because we're taking people who are in their sixties, mid sixties, mm -hmm. with disease. Uh, you, you give them a small dose of omega three on top of several drugs already. And you expect to turn that ship around. And I, I think it's asking too much. I was going to ask you that. And I mean, you mentioned the Japanese have a lifetime exposure of right. that kind of 8%. And 
I think this even gets lost a little bit in some of the statin trials as well when if you if you're if you intervene very late in someone's life and they've had a, a lifetime exposure to very elevated LDL, you can only kind of expect so much, right? Right, um, right, right. So cool. reduce it. Used a a, a four gram uh, supplement and it was uh, EPA or a sort of specialized form of EPA. And then that second trial that you mentioned there, I, I think that was the strength trial if I'm correct right. that was the one that you said use the EPA DHA blend similar dose found uh, no significant differences is is any of this possibly explained by the fact that reduce it went with a just EPA and is there a mechanism whereby EPA may be more beneficial for reducing risk of cardiovascular disease well it's it's certainly one way to look at the data uh, it, it's possible I don't think anybody believe. Well, I think the people that sell Vasipa believe it, um, but I, most people in the omega three world in general uh, don't believe that that makes sense. Mm-hmm. I think there's something else was going on in the strength study, um, which was ne- which was neutral, um, and again used a, an unusual form of EPA and DHA is free fatty acids, which can be kind of irritating and could actually maybe be some stimulating some inflammation. Uh, potentially, that's one of the ideas mm-hmm. as to why it didn't work. But in in any event, I I don't. No, nobody's done a pure e, a pure DHA study, and there are none on the docket as far as I know. But there really should be uh, to counter the the idea that DHA is not helpful, there or that EPA or any DHA in an omega three capsule cancels the effects of EPA, which I don't mm-hmm. believe at all. Um, when we look at blood levels of DHA and risk for disease across the board, higher DHA levels are always associated with, with better, Mm -hmm. uh, cardiovascular and and mental outcomes. Mm. So I don't, I I don't think there's a problem with DHA. I wish somebody would just do a study with pure DHA and, and prove Mm. it. I guess that limitation, though, of study duration and how long someone's being exposed to it is still always going to be there in a r- randomized right. controlled trial. Uh, right. The, exactly. The, you, can't, you can't do it for 10 or 20 years. Those two trials, correct me if I'm wrong, they were folks that were sort of at risk of cardiovascular disease? Oh, yeah. They were high-risk people. What about the the vital trial or any trials that have looked at more healthy adults and mm-hmm. different sort of omega three supplementation uh, regimes? Can you tell us about the findings there? Yeah, so the, the vital study was uh, what they call a two by two study design because they were interested in vitamin D supplementation and omega three supplementation. And so they recruited like 25,000 people um, in their 50s, 60s, roughly, um, without cancer, without heart disease, uh, like you said, fairly healthy people, uh, adults. And they gave them either one gram a day, or actually 840 milligrams a day of EPA and DHA. So it's a one capsule of, of uh, Loveza, which is a, a pharmaceutical omega-3 product. So not a big dose, 800-ish milligrams, or they got 2,000 units of vitamin D, they got both of them, or they got neither. And then they were followed for four or five years. And 
again, that's a fairly short period to follow up on, on people. So what they found was, uh, and this gets complicated, the top line, if you read the abstract of the study, the summary, the omega-3s didn't do anything. Uh, and that's because they had picked a what they call a composite endpoint. Uh, and an endpoint is the, the the disease you're trying to affect, you know. So you're trying to affect heart attacks, for example, and that's your endpoint. Uh, but they did a composite, which is like uh, fatal or non-fatal coronary disease, fatal or non-fatal stroke. Um, and was there anything? I think those are the primary ones. Mm -hmm. So those four together. Uh, and when... When you looked at the effects of omega-3 on that composite endpoint, there wasn't any effect. But if you looked at the effects of omega-3 on heart attacks, for example, that mm -hmm. was statistically significantly reduced. So it's a matter of what you focus on. Mm -hmm. And these studies, uh, again, the, the top line results that the medical community hears is just the abstract is that omega-3 didn't do anything. And therefore, they assume, they didn't look deeply in the study and say, oh, well, it actually affected that important mm -hmm. outcome. How come that wasn't in the abstract? You know, it, like heart attacks are important. They found that people that were um, eating less than one and a half servings of fish a week, which was sort of the lower half of the population, uh, for them, even the, the omega-3s even affected this composite endpoint. Mm -hmm. It was beneficial. So for low omega-3 intake, uh, giving more omega-3 was beneficial. That makes sense. So there's some subtleties and, and, and uh, good findings buried in these studies that kind of get mm -hmm. lost. Yeah, that that sort of sub-analysis of looking at low fish eaters, less than one and a half serves mm -hmm. a week, was one of, not the only one, of the kind of findings that I used to formulate my advice to folks that are not eating fish was, Good. you know, based on this study, it does look like, I think it was 850 milligrams of, or it was a gram, but it was 850 milligrams of active EPA and DHA. Um, Correct. And there does seem to be a, a significant benefit there. And I think one of the difficult things I will say within the kind of vegetarian and vegan community, Bill, is that they they look at the meta-analyses and, and show that vegetarians typically have lower risk of cardiovascular disease. But that's that's not to say that there is extra benefits that could be potentially up for grabs here by optimizing further. Yeah, I, would, I agree. Exactly. Yeah, right, right. So a vegan diet with, a, with an omega-3 supplement it might make a lot of sense. So with all of that that research in mind on sort of primary prevention, secondary prevention, different dosages. And you mentioned there 800 uh, milligrams to a sort of gram, getting someone from 4% to 8% on the omega-3 index. Where do you kind of land today if someone is wanting to supplement, and let's say they're not eating fish, uh, What what's the, the daily dose that you think is currently the, the sort of most evidence-based at this point in time. Yeah. Um, I would say, and I may have to correct myself, because what, what we published and what we showed was um, if you want to go from 4% to 8%, it takes about 1,500 milligrams. Sure, okay. So if you want to go from 5% to 8%, it's less. Mm -hmm. 
less distance to go. But 4% to 8%. And we am the omega-3 index categories are basically under 4% is the worst. 4 to 8% is sort of intermediate and over 8% is a target. So 1,500 milligrams um, of a triglyceride-based oil. And then when that opens another can of worms, right? Because the ethyl ester-based uh, omega-3 products aren't absorbed quite as well. So you need higher doses of the ethyl ester base. So 1,500. So what would I say the, for the, the standard American? I would say something between 1,000 and 1,500 milligrams a day. You've got a lot, of, a lot of ground to make up. The Yeah, so you said that it was down around 100 to 200, somewhere in there. Uh, oh, yeah, yeah. So there's, there's you know, 1,300-odd milligrams to kind of, or more to, to make up there what about so two things one you just mentioned there that it's better as a triglyceride form not ethyl ester and i'm interested if someone just goes to a random supplement store and picks a epa dha product off the shelf which form is it uh i think that will be helpful information and then secondly these supplements do come in a number of different varieties. You can see ones that just say DHA on them. Others say DHA and EPA. Some just say EPA. I think we've established that you feel a, a mix of both is beneficial. But then right. again, then the ratios seem to vary a little bit between brands. So uh, is there a, a ratio that you recommend? Uh, not a hard and fast one. I, I do agree that both EPA and DHA ought to be in your supplement. Uh, whether it's a little heavier on DHA or a little heavier on EPA, um, nobody has really diced that out to be able to say with any confidence that this one's better than that one. Um, so it's, if, if it's somewhere between you know two parts DHA and one part EPA or the reverse, that's good. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, I, I, I think that's the place to be. Ethyl esters, can you tell if you're taking an ethyl ester? They're supposed to put it on the label. Okay. Uh, it would be in the ingredients, not, not the nutrition facts, but it'd be in the ingredients uh, at the bottom where it says uh, contains ethyl esters. And ethyl esters aren't bad. They, they just are not as absorbed quite as well. Um, and they're used in the pharmaceutical products because they allow you to put more omega-3 per capsule. Uh, there are newer products that are what's called restructured or re, uh, reformed triglycerides that are can be higher in omega-3 EPA, DHA. They're a little more expensive, mm-hmm. but they're in a more absorbable form. Okay. So I, I, I think those are good ones. And what would you look out for in packaging to to sort of know that you're buying that? They would, they would tell you that it is a restructure or a reformulated uh, okay. uh, triglyceride. They would make a big deal about that because it's expensive, mm-hmm. and their product is probably going to be a little bit more expensive than the, next, sure. the guy next door. That's not that way, so they want to be mm-hmm. emphasizing that. Okay. And what about someone who has cardiovascular disease? or is at high risk of and perhaps has high triglycerides, elevated triglycerides, is, is that a, a sort of circumstance where there is an indication for a higher dose? Yeah. The, the, I would say in the neighborhood of, of three to four grams if you're dealing with the high triglycerides. Mm-hmm. And is there a difference if you uh, – and, and forgive me for – 
digging into these details because they may be irrelevant, but no, I'm curious. Uh, is there a difference in that circumstance, let's say just going into your pharmacy chemist and picking up uh, three or four gram uh, DHA EPA off the shelf versus one of these prescription ones like what was used in Reduce It? Um, you, if you're going to get them off the shelf in the, at the chemist or at the pharmacy, um, you can certainly find many products that have uh, roughly one gram of EPA and DHA per capsule, which is exactly what the pharmaceutical products have. Uh, what you'll find is though the, the pill is bigger than the pharmaceutical one would be because in order to get 1000 milligrams of EPA and DHA in, in a capsule that you might need a capsule that's 1.4 grams of oil instead of one gram of oil. So it's just a bigger pill. Mm -hmm. The percent of omega-3 is less gotcha. in, in the okay. uh, dietary supplements typically. Um, so if the percent is less, you just got to put more oil in the pill. Sure. So it's less purified compared to the pharmaceutical. Less, less, less concentrated, I guess you'd say. Yeah, concentrated is a better word. It's interesting though that you've got pharmaceutical sort of regulated compounds and then over the counter and they're so similar. I know. I, that's part of the, the trick of nutrition. That's, that's very tough. <laughs> okay. Um, yeah. But, about, but the molecules are the same. What about kids? I'm not not sure if you have any views on this, but is is the 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 sort of regime, whether it's through diet or through uh, supplementation, the amount that someone should be targeting, is that any different to a, a healthy adult? Yeah, I mean, I I, I stand on, on far less firm ground, um, but I, I would aim for something in the neighborhood of three to six hundred milligrams a day mm -hmm. of EPA and DHA for a kid. Okay. Just because they're smaller. That, that makes perfect sense. And <laughs> what about the type or the source of DHA and EPA here, Bill? Uh, I think uh, some folks listening are probably okay with fish oil. There might be some listening that are buying, currently buying algae oil or thinking about buying algae oil. Is there a, a difference in terms of the, the effectiveness of the DHA and EPA in, in those two different sources? No, it's, okay. it's the same molecule. It's just the, the algal products um, make it straight from, an, again, a, a micro, a very specific species of, of microalgae will, will, will make, naturally make EPA or DHA. Mm -hmm. And they put them, isolate the oil from those algae and put them in pills. Um, but the, the molecule, the EPA and DHA are identical to mm -hmm. what you get in fish oils. Okay. That's where the fish get them in the first place. Do you recommend, you mentioned earlier that polyunsaturated fats are a little more unstable. Do you recommend storing these supplements in the fridge? Would that be better from a stability point of view or are they okay in your cupboard? They're okay in the cupboard. Um, I know that some some products say do not put them in the fridge because it can affect the uh, how brittle the gelatin capsule is, mm. and freezing them is not a good idea. 
they are completely impervious to oxygen once they're in these gel caps. So you can be, keep, you can be kept, I think, in the dark. Of course, they're all in dark bottles okay. anyway. Yeah. Well, they don't need to be refrigerated. That's comforting to know. Uh, and sometimes different supplements say take on an empty stomach, take with food. Yeah. Any sense with with regards to the to DHA and EPA, what's better from an absorption point of view? Yeah, with food. Okay. Is better, yeah, right. because you're you're absorbing fat, and so you want all your body's juices that are designed to uh, digest and absorb mm-hmm. fat to be flowing at the same time you take the supplement. Okay, that's a good tip. What about side effects? We haven't spoken much about, I guess, the right. the sort of um, dose response curve. My first question here is: is just more better? Or do we have any sense of as you as your omega three index goes up, or your intake of DHA EPA goes up, does it start to plateau? Does it start to actually go the other way and increase risk? What do we What do we know about that? Um, th- there is no upper limit from a safety point of view that anybody knows about. Um, it's, it's philosophically, theoretically, there ought to be. Hmm. Um, but it is, these are sort of self-limiting nutrients in a way. Uh, people just don't eat that much this stuff. They, they don't eat that much fish um, to, to actually do this. There was always a concern about bleeding, a higher, higher omega-3 levels. Uh, and this, this came out of the original uh, Eskimo studies from the 1970s. Um, and, and some later studies that looked at effects on, on blood platelet aggregation with fish oils. And the, the fish oils do thin the blood a little bit in the same sense that aspirin mm-hmm. can thin the blood. And, and th- of course, thinning the blood is not really what it does. It just makes the blood less likely to clot mm. in inappropriate places. Um, so you will have slightly longer bleeding times. But bleeding, what they call clinically significant bleeding, I mean, cutting yourself while you're shaving and bleeding a little bit from that is not clinically significant bleeding. Hmm. That's an annoyance bleeding. Um, and you probably will see a little more bleeding if you're taking high doses of omega-3, two, three, four grams a day. Um, but it's, it, I always think it's actually you're, you're bleeding the right amount. Okay. You, you, you know, it, most Americans are bleeding or, or don't bleed well enough. <laughs> Their blood is too thick. Hmm. Um, so, the FDA in looking at all these omega-3 drugs, of course, has a, there's a category for bleeding and, and for people who are on blood thinners. And they, first of all, say that omega-3s at the dose four grams a day is, is not associated with clinically significant bleeding. Okay. And that's been seen many times, even if you're on blood thinners. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that that's a concern that people used to have. And I think it's the really the only one of any substance. I mean, people are worried about uh, if they have allergies to fish, should they take fish oil? Uh, and the answer is that, yeah, that's okay because the fish allergies are not from the oil mm-hmm. in the fish, they're from the proteins, peptides in the fish, um, and they're all gone from the oil. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that's not a problem. We didn't speak too much about the mechanisms of EPA and DHA and how they may be relating to to heart disease but mm-hmm. I'm presuming that that risk of bleeding is, and I know you say that's probably normal, but I guess one way of looking at that is it's a sort of double-edged sword in that it's it's actually through reducing 
the the clotting that you could be reducing the risk of having an event as well. That's right. In yeah. fact, that was the original. That was the original theory mm-hmm. that the the way the omega threes were protecting these Eskimos from heart attacks was because they didn't have blood clots mm. in their heart. And um, so you say original that's theory. Expanded since then, huh? Yeah. Where, whereas, give us give us a, a sense of where that's kind of expanded to today. Oh, it's it's expanded a lot. Um, now I think the if anti um, blood clotting was the mechanism in the seventies and eighties, um, the mechanism now is anti-inflammatory. Mm-hmm. That the omega threes have a, a wide variety of anti-inflammatory effects um, through being made into not only not only do they prevent the uh, or slow an active inflammation in process in the body, they can also accelerate the resolution of inflammation mm-hmm. in the body um, via the pr- production of a variety of molecules from EPA and DHA called resolvins and protectins. And that's, uh, in the last 10 years, people have seen that as a, a, a growing mechanism of action. And they also lower heart, excuse me, they lower triglyceride levels. They still do that, and that's good. Um, they make the blood vessels a little uh, more supple, a little less stiff. That's a good thing. They make the heart rates a little bit slower, so they might affect the uh, um, nervous system, the way that the heart, actually, it might even affect the uh, the pacemaker in the heart and, and slows the heart down a little bit, which is a good thing uh, to a point, of course. Um, so there's a variety of mechanisms that people are pointing to. But inflammation, if you had to pick one, I'd pick that mm. one. Yeah, my dad is a, a professor and he'll be glad that you mentioned vascular stiffness. It's what most of his, <laughs> his career research has been on. Uh, is that right? Yeah. Interesting. So regarding uh, potential side effects, you mentioned bleeding. I've got mm-hmm. a couple others that I'd just like to kind of uh, run past you and get sure. your commentary on. Um, atrial fibrillation. That's one that I've seen a little bit of, of commentary on and noise on. Is that is that something to be concerned with? Yeah, that's that's come out of these um, more recent high-dose high omega-3 trials where uh, – there was an increased risk for atrial fibrillation. Um, and so atrial fibrillation is an abnormal heart rhythm uh, that's not fatal. Uh, a ventricular arrhythmia is a problem because uh, that will stop your heart from beating. Uh, ventricular is not fun, but it, it's not fatal. Um, but it's the risk for it seemed to have gone from, you know, from a Two percent of people developed it in one study to three percent. Okay, mm-hmm. so depending on how you want to play the game, it's uh, that's a fifty percent increase in risk or a, or one percent increase in risk, absolute risk. Uh, and it, it's it's surprising; um, hasn't been seen in, in many other studies, uh, but has been seen recently in in two fairly big studies. Mm-hmm. Um, we've now we're now doing a study asking the question. Uh, if you look at people's blood levels of omega-3 over time, is there a relationship between having a high omega-3 for a long time in your blood, just from, not from taking supplements, but just from uh, the way you eat uh, or your own metabolism? Uh, does that increase risk for atrial fibrillation? And it doesn't. Mm. Um, in fact, there have been trials that were, were done 
15 years ago, uh, trying to reduce risk for AFib with omega-3. Um, and, and they didn't see any increased risk in those studies. It, it didn't benefit, it didn't reduce risk for AFib. So that's, uh, it, uh, it is a new one, you're right, uh, that has, has come to the fore. Whether it's it's real or whether it's bothersome or worrisome is still, uh, the question is still out there. We really don't know. And um, I, probably if, if you have AFib, it's probably a good idea not to mm. talk to your doctor about it, but he'll, yeah. he'll probably say don't. don't yeah, that was it. my question. If someone had it, whether it was contraindicated, but yeah, I think that's good yeah. advice just to. Uh, yeah. And I don't, I think what's contraindicated would be high doses. Mm -hmm. uh, I don't think taking a thousand milligrams a day of EPA. In fact, the vital study did do a, uh, a sub study when they gave 840 milligrams, one capsule of Lovesa, and, and they didn't see any increased risk in AFib. Mm -hmm. So, interesting. I think it's okay at the, those levels. Talk to me about Theodore Brasky's uh, select trial because, wow. <laughs> yeah, I, I thought that might get a chuckle. Um, I've, heard, I've heard uh, quite a few doctors and, uh, you know, he seems to be from all circles, but there is a, a number of vegan doctors in particular that suggest, you know, people should be very careful about taking DHA, men in particular, because it can increase the risk of prostate cancer. I know that you're across this research and I'd, I'd love to hear your thoughts on it. Yeah, that was, uh, it's amazing how much damage one bad paper can do. Um, because in, in that particular study, it was observational study, um, looking at very, very small differences in blood omega-3 levels um, and risk of prostate cancer. And uh, the, the, the actual, there was a small difference in risk, uh, but the authors jumped, took it way out of context. Uh, there was no, no dietary supplements were used in this study. Uh, but the authors said people should stay away from omega-3 supplements because it increases risk. Well, the study wasn't with omega-3 supplements. So they, they're extrapolating from that. Anyway, this was 10, maybe 12 years ago now. And, and many people have looked back and we've done studies, others have done studies and looking at omega-3 levels and risk for prostate cancer. We don't see it. It's not there. There's even some studies showing lower risk for prostate cancer. Mm -hmm. So it's been refuted, but it's not, it's just still bouncing around in a lot of people's minds. Mm. Why do you think that is in general? Is that because if you kind of put your stake in the ground, it's, it's, it's hard to, to go back on your word as, as the science evolves? Oh, I, I think it's because people are way more interested in keeping bad things out of their mouth than putting good things in. Mm -hmm. They're more afraid of yeah. toxins than yeah. they are uh, attending to important nutrients. Mm -hmm. um, That's comforting to know that there's been more research. And oh, yeah, there's been a lot. It doesn't seem to have played out. It's not, it's not increasing risk. Another uh, thing that I, I found to be surprising and I'm not sure if you've looked at this, there was a, a, a paper published on the vital uh, study. I think it was a, like a, a follow-up or reanalysis of data looking at omega-3s and brain health. And it seemed to find that the omega-3 supplementation led to increased risk of depression or depressive symptoms 
in individuals without depression at baseline. I'm not sure if if you've seen that. I have. I don't remember seeing that either. That or I've suppressed it. Okay. <laughs> um, no, the, the last vital um, sub study I saw was an autoimmune disease. Mm-hmm where they show, showed a re- reduced risk for autoimmune disease and the omega-3. Treatment. Interesting. Um, but I haven't seen that. I've got, I need to look. Um, yeah. I'll, the depression question. I can send that over and that can be, yeah, I appreciate that can that. be in part two. Um, but I guess if, if we zoom out on that idea of, of omega-3s and brain health, because we've spoken mostly about cardiovascular disease here, mm-hmm. uh, what's, what's the kind of current understanding of the role of DHA and EPA with regards to cognition and preventing neurodegenerative disease. I think usually yeah. people or folks will think of DHA here, but I'm led to believe that EPA may, may also uh, be important. And there, there seem to be some trials showing benefit again, some maybe not. I'd love to hear your thoughts on that. Yeah. Um, the randomized trials giving omega-3 to try to slow cognitive loss or essentially prevent developing dementia have been uh, mixed. Again, it's the usual thing of uh, no, no harm, uh, but sometimes no benefit. But in other times, depending if you have this APOE genotype, which puts you at a little higher APE4, uh, genotype, which puts you at higher risk for Alzheimer's, there may be of some benefit. Uh, we're uh, doing a study right now where we're looking at omega-3 levels, the omega-3 index, or actually red blood cell DHA levels as a predictor of risk for Alzheimer's disease. And we find a, a beneficial, this is a strongly beneficial effect of mm-hmm. higher omega-3 levels. This is not a randomized trial, it's observational. Uh, but we see higher DHA levels are associated with lower risk for, and this is just confirming something that was seen 10 years ago. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think there's good evidence that having a higher omega-3 level for a long time will slow the development of uh, dep- not depression, uh, dementia. Mm-hmm. But mentioning depression, I think that's probably where you, you, you picked up on the EPA thing. Um, there are several studies looking at the effects of omega-3 on, on depression, depressive symptoms mm-hmm. and uh, the when you put it all together it looks some of them it's successful some of them haven't um, but when meta-analyses have been done pooling different studies they seem to point to EPA rich products are have been more effective in affecting in mm-hmm. lowering depression than DHA rich products which was kind of contra what people expected since the brain has virtually no EPA in it mm-hmm. Um other than the blood that circulates through the brain. Uh, but DHA is very rich in the brain, so people naturally think DHA and brain, but maybe DHA and brain for cog- for mm. uh, cognition and dementia, but for depression, maybe it's EPA. Interesting. Uh, that's where I like to say both of them. I think they're both important. And the dosages that we spoke about before, that 1,000 or 1,500 milligram a day, is that – is that the same? Like that? That's going to be the beneficial for cardiovascular and brain health. Yeah, okay. right. As you'd kind of expect, once you get once you get the right level in the cells and the cell membranes, then everything seems to work better. Mm-hmm. I didn't ask you, but on the omega three index, 
I'm, I'm interested, if I just walk into my physician and get a blood test and it, it shows me the sort of omega-3 level, I think that often that's looking at plasma, just looking at the omega-3 in the, in the blood. Can, can you kind of clarify the difference between just a routine omega-3 test and omega-3 index? Well, I wish there was a routine omega-3 test. Okay. Um, be most, most doctors don't know anything about it or know that it's even available to measure. Um, yeah, the test we developed is red blood cell based. It comes from a, it can be done either on a dried blood spot or on a, uh, a regular tube of blood. Um, so that's a, that's one metric. We think it's the more stable, the more reflective of your tissues. Uh, but other, there are some labs that are measuring plasma omega-3 levels, which are noisier day to day. Uh, but mm-hmm. still, it's better than nothing. Uh, I, I'm happy to see any physician paying attention to an omega-3 status, almost regardless of what the test is, mm-hmm. and, and hoping to optimize it. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's what I'd like to see. So most people don't get omega-3 testing when they go to their doctor for a, a physical. Sure. But the, the 4% and the 8% is specifically talking about the omega-3 index, right? Mm-hmm. Omega three index red blood cell, okay. right, not plasma. And if I'm at four percent, and I change my diet and I get it up to the sort of fifteen hundred milligrams a day, yeah. uh, how long is it going to take me? How long between tests? You said there's sort of more noise in the plasma, so I'm assuming you need to wait a bit longer on the omega three index. Right, and it's because it's measured in a red blood cell. Uh, all of our red blood cells, we get a whole new crop every four months or so. Uh, so we, th- we like to recommend about four months before mm-hmm. you reach a new steady state. You'd be pretty close to there at three months. So three to four months, you could uh, do a retest to see where, how well you've, your body's responded to an increased intake. Mm-hmm. Well, Bill, we're coming to the, the kind of end of this one and I'm saving a, a chunk of things for part two. I'm cognizant that it, it's getting quite late where you are. So to be, to be fair to, to your time and you've been so generous. Uh, so thank you for that. Is there anything, before I ask you a couple of final questions to wrap things up, is there anything that we've covered so far that you think we, we perhaps could have extended on a bit further? Well, I think the one thing I, I'm really impressed with with omega-3 uh, levels and, and predicting different disease outcomes, one thing we haven't talked about is just total total mortality, mm-hmm. lifespan. Uh, I alluded to it in Japanese situation, but we've, we've done studies uh, outside of the Japanese world where we've seen that people, and this was a study that had you know 40,000 people in it, um, pooled together data from 17 different uh, population studies. And we found that the people that had the highest omega-3 levels in this group um, of over 40,000 people uh, had significantly longer lives, statistically significantly longer lives, right? Um, Lower risk for death uh, in a a given window of time. So these omega-3s, and they also reduce risk not just for death from anything, but for death from heart disease, for death from cancer, and for death from all other causes. So it's not just mm-hmm. a heart thing. Uh, the omega-3s do something uh, 
system-wide, body-wide, that, that make everything work better. And that's, I think that's a really important point. Um, if we're talking about longevity and living well longer, then having a high omega-3 is a big part of that. On that analysis, I think one thing that comes to mind, particularly anything that's epidemiological, and there's probably people thinking this, within that analysis, did you adjust correct for the fact that people that perhaps are eating more fish are also eating more fiber and fruits and vegetables or exercising more or smoking less, drinking less alcohol, that sort of stuff? Yeah, we can, we control for many of those things. Um, in, in this particular analysis, I'm not sure we controlled for other dietary components because uh, not every study records that, but we certainly uh, took mm. care of uh, smoking, body weight, age, sex, um, whether you have diabetes or not, whether you have heart disease or not, uh, whether you uh, exercise or not, uh, those sort of things are all mm. accounted for. I think it would be interesting, and I don't know if anyone's done it, to see what would happen if you control for ALA intake. Um, we can certainly control for ALA levels mm. in the blood, um, but intake would be a different question. I mean, there have been some studies showing a higher ALA intake is associated with, with cardiovascular benefits, right? Mm-hmm. No, no question. Um, new review is coming out soon um, that will really look at ALA across the spectrum. And there's benefits there. You know, the question is how much of it is due to the um, conversion to EPA and DHA. Mm-hmm. Sure. Okay. Well, coming to the end here, uh, you mentioned a study that you're working on, but just generally speaking, what studies would you like to see in the next coming five, 10 years that will help fill in some of the gaps and give us greater clarity over some of the things that we've discussed? Well, I'd like to see a DHA trial uh, to balance the EPA study that was done. Uh, I would really like to see that. And I would like to see uh, longer-term studies done in, in healthier people at the beginning and really following people for, mm. if we could, for 10, 15 years of supplement use because I really think they're going to see benefits there when a, a four- to five-year study may not show an effect. Mm-hmm. But uh, longer-term would. Um, and we certainly need more studies on the mechanism of action because not that they're really going to change what you do with omega-3, but I think they're going to give us some ideas of basic biology uh, that will may- maybe help us create some new drugs that are based on the omega-3s because we see their, their mechanism of action. Um, so those are, those are a few things I'd like to, to see done. Um, you know, I'd like to know what the effects of omega-3 on eye health mm. are in, in, in better in, in better focus, pardon the pun. Yeah. Because there's 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 some good evidence there too. Well, I, I need some help with that. Uh, yeah, there's certainly a lot, a lot more to, to explore. Uh, I personally think it would be interesting to take a group of vegetarians and vegans and track them over time and see the outcomes, if there's any difference in outcomes between those who do and do not supplement with DHA and, and EPA. I think that would be interesting. Yeah, that, that would be a great study. That would be a great study. 
well it would take a lot of people. <laughs> yeah, it would take a, a lot of people. I'm not sure if we'll ever see it, but fingers crossed. Yeah, I know. Uh, this has been super informative. I've learned so much. You're a wealth of knowledge. Thank you so much for joining me. Thank you for clarifying so many things. I'd like to ask you one final question that maybe sure. will help wrap this up. From a, a food perspective, let's say, Bill Harris, you are in charge of the food environment and not just policy, but the policies, let's say the policies you introduced actually changed the food environment and actually changed how people ate. What what foods would you want people to be eating more of and what foods less of? What would the, the overall dietary pattern look like? Well, it's a good question. Um, and it may be, like I said, I'm a, I, I'm a mile mile deep and an inch wide. Uh, I, I'm, I'm very focused on omega three. So when it gets to total dietary patterns, I'm mm. a little more. I, I think if I had to put a name on a dietary pattern that um, I think would be the healthiest would be probably pescatarian. Would be vegetarian with fish, mm-hmm. plant plant based, uh, rich richly plant based, but adding fish. Beautiful. Well. Bill, thank you so much. Uh, if folks would like to connect with you or, or read more about your work online, find find out more about the Omega-3 index test, where is the, the best place to send them? Oh, probably to, to uh, OmegaQuant, uh, Bill at OmegaQuant, O-M-E-G-A-Q-U-A-N-T dot com. Perfect. Easiest email address to go to. Okay, we can put that into the the show notes and uh, hope we get to continue this. I hope we have a, a part Love two. To. Uh, you're welcome back anytime that you'd like and maybe one day we can get a game of pickleball in. <laughs> you'd be good. I know you'd be good. <laughs> All right, thanks, Bill. All right, take care. Thank you for joining me for this episode and your interest in science-based conversation. I hope you enjoyed it and found the information covered interesting and instructive. If you did and you'd like to show your support for the show, please subscribe to our YouTube channel where you can stay up to date with new episodes and watch them in video format. Yes, the full length videos. Please also consider subscribing to the show on the Spotify and or Apple podcast app, wherever you enjoy listening to podcasts. You can also leave a review on Apple or Spotify. Again, a great way to support the show and make our content more discoverable for others to enjoy and learn from. If you have any comments about the episodes, suggestions for future episodes, including guests you'd like to see on the show, or questions that you'd like to have answered, please leave those in the comments section on YouTube. I myself and my team will take note of these comments when planning future episodes. Finally, the best way to support the show and receive discounts on products we love is by checking out our sponsors at theproof.com forward slash friends. Enjoy your week, stay well, and I look forward to catching you in the next episode.